0: Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our adult reconstruction lecture series. This lecture will focus on key testable material involving revision total hip arthroplasty, hip resurfacing, hip arthrodesis, and resection arthroplasty. This will be followed by a lecture dedicated to hip arthroplasty complications, and then finally we will conclude the adult reconstruction lecture series with three lectures on knee arthroplasty. Alright, let's get started. Let's begin by talking about revision total hip arthroplasty. Patients with a failed total hip arthroplasty typically present with pain. Depending on the reason for failure, this pain can have different characteristics. Startup pain, or pain when transitioning from a seated or recumbent position that is worse for the first few steps and improves slightly while walking, is characteristic of loosening. One of my attendings described this to me by imagining a fibrous barrier surrounding the implant. When the patient is recumbent or non-weight bearing, the loosened implant can drift a millimeter or two from its native, impacted, and well-fixed location to a loose position. As the patient begins to bear weight, the implant, under the force of body weight, gets driven back into its impacted and stable position. The transition from the loosened position to the impacted position can be felt as pain, which dissipates once the implant is driven back into its well-fixed position under the patient's own body weight. Whether or not this is the actual etiology of startup pain, I do not know. However, I find it helpful to conceptualize why this startup pain would occur. Other causes of a painful total hip need to be fully worked up as well, and we'll talk about them in great detail during the complications lecture. But briefly, some of the causes of pain can be iliopsoas impingement, infection, fracture, trochanteric bursitis, instability, pseudotumor formation on metal and metal hips, and referred pain from the lumbar spine. Pain localized to the groin may indicate a loose acetabular component, while pain in the thigh may indicate a loose femoral stem. What are some of the reasons that a patient would need to undergo revision hip surgery? The most common indications include instability, aseptic implant loosening, and osteolysis, typically caused by polyethylene wear. Component malposition, which may manifest as either instability, Pain or accelerated wear patterns and periprosthetic fractures and infection also may require revision. Pain that occurs at night may be more concerning for infection. It is also important to ask the patient whether they are having any systemic symptoms including fever, chills, or malaise. The timing of the onset of pain needs to be established if we are worried about infection. Remember from our periprosthetic infection talk that if the infection is present less than three weeks, then the infection is considered acute with implants that may be salvageable, while an infection greater than three weeks is considered chronic, with an assumed biofilm production, and would necessitate a two-stage revision. Physical examination of a patient with a painful total hip should include inspection of the skin for any erythema, draining sinuses, or fluctuance. Range of motion, strength, gait, and signs of instability should also be assessed. Imaging starts with plain radiographs. This should include an AP pelvis and dedicated views of the hip, as well as full-length femur films and judea views of the pelvis should be obtained to assess for osteolysis. A CT scan can provide even more detail to the degree of bone loss. If there is concern for pseudotumor formation in the setting of a metal-on-metal hip, a MARS or Metal Artifact Reduction Sequence MRI can be obtained. In the setting of a painful total hip, prior to initiating any surgical intervention, infection must be ruled out. This includes obtaining an ESR, CRP, and CBC to assess for any increase in the white blood cell count or inflammatory markers. If the laboratory analysis is suggestive of infection, a joint arthrocentesis should be performed with the synovial fluid sent for analysis. Remember that the cutoff value suggested for periprosthetic joint infection is 1,100 white blood cells with greater than 64% neutrophils. The degree in etiology of bone loss plays a role in the surgical decision-making process. Periprosthetic infections will be treated according to their acuity, acute infections treated with irrigation and debridement, exchange of modular components, IV antibiotics, and watchful waiting, while chronic infections will necessitate a two-stage revision procedure. When infection is ruled out or cleared, we need to consider our reconstructive options. Classification systems are based on the degree of bone loss and help to guide the treatment decisions. Two common classification systems utilized are the AAOS classification and Proprosky classification systems. Both systems focus on the pattern of bone loss. We will briefly go over the AAOS classification system. In terms of the acetabulum, a type 1 AAOS defect is defined as a segmental defect. This is the loss of a main bony support structure, such as the acetabular rim, columns, or medial wall. A type 2 defect is a cavitary defect and is defined as a loss of cancillus bone without the loss of structural bone support. A type 3 defect is a combined defect. A type 4 defect is pelvic discontinuity, in which there is a complete separation between the superior and inferior acetabulum. And finally, in a type 5 defect, there is an arthrodesis of the hip. The femoral side follows a similar classification pattern. A type 1 defect is a segmental defect in which there is a loss of cortical support, or in plain terms, a hole in the cortex. In a type 2 defect, the cortex remains intact. However, there is a significant loss of endosteal bone and cavitary widening. A type 3 defect is a combined defect with segmental and cavitary defects. A type 4 defect involves a loss of the normal femoral geometry, either from a prior trauma, surgery, or disease. And a type 5 defect, there is a loss of the canal, or canal stenosis. Lastly, a type 6 defect, there is femoral discontinuity, either from a fracture or a non-union. The Poprowski classification system uses similar principles in that it incorporates the presence or absence of the main bony support structures. On the acetabular side, a type 1 is defined as a fully intact rim with minimal bone loss. A type 2a has some superior bone loss, but a fully intact superior rim, while the type 2b has an absent superior rim and superior lateral migration of the femoral head. 2c has loss of the medial wall. A Poprowski 3a acetabulum has bone loss from the 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock position with superior lateral cut migration, and 3b has extensive bone loss from 9 to 5 across the acetabular rim with superior medial cut migration. On the femoral side, type 1 has minimal metaphyseal bone loss. Type 2, the metaphysis is gone, but there is an intact diaphysis. In type 3A and 3B, the metaphysis is gone as well. However, in a 3A, there is at least 4 centimeters of intact diaphysis, while in a 3B, there is less than 4 centimeters of intact diaphyseal cortical bone. In type 4, the metaphysis and diaphysis are both completely destroyed. The important takeaway point of both of these classification systems is to understand that segmental defects are much more difficult to reconstruct than cavitary defects due to the loss of the main bony supports. Now that we have defined our need for hip revision surgery and classified our degree of bone loss, how do we treat these patients? Well, it is important to plan prior to surgery. However, some of the decisions will be need to be made interoperatively depending on the implant stability. In the cases of isolated bearing wear, With no osteolysis, an isolated bearing exchange may be performed with exchange of the head and liner of the hip. The most common complication following an isolated modular bearing exchange is dislocation. Remember this as it has been tested in the past. Now let's address revision of the acetabular component. In the setting of a well fixed implant with osteolytic lesions, possibly lesions behind the cup that occurred through a screw hole, The implant may be retained and treated with bone grafting and modular bearing surface exchange, including the polyethylene liner and femoral head. But what if there is more bone loss? If greater than two-thirds of the supporting rim structure remains, a fully porous-coated hemispheric cup with screw fixation may be used as a revision component. The goal is to place the cup in an inferior and medial position to produce the lowest joint reaction forces. A superior and lateral position may lead to increased joint reaction forces, a higher rate of wear, and component loosening. If, however, there is less than two-thirds of the rim remaining for a major segmental defect, it is unlikely that a standard revision cup will be adequate to achieve fixation. In this case, the patient will require a reconstructive cage with allograft fixation. The cage is placed against the acetabulum, and bony defects are grafted behind the cage. An acetabular cup is then cemented into the reconstructive cage. Reconstruction of pelvic discontinuity is a massive endeavor. The posterior column is typically reconstructed with plate fixation, a multi-flange reconstructive cage, and a hemispheric or jumbo cup. Now let's turn our attention to the femoral side. How do we revise the femoral stem? The Propolsky classification helps to guide these treatment options. A type 1 defect can typically be managed with revision surgery and placement of a primary total hip arthroplasty component. Type 2 and 3A defects will require an uncemented, extensively porous-coated long stem prosthesis. Remember, when using a long stem prosthesis, that the distal tip of the stem must bypass any cortical defects by at least two canal diameters. Type 3B and 4 defects, in which there is a very large canal and thin cortices, may require impaction bone grafting. Cortical holes can be reinforced with allograft struts and cerclage cables. If there is no cortical diaphyseal bone for support, then this would be considered a type 4 defect, and patients may require a megaprosthesis or proximal femoral replacement. Alternatively, some surgeons would prefer to use an allograft prosthetic composite. Alright, so now let's turn our attention to hip resurfacing procedures. These are indicated in patients with advanced arthritis and good bone stock. Questions involving hip resurfacing procedures typically involve indications and complications. Advantages and indications for resurfacing procedures include preservation of the femoral bone stock, low dislocation rate, and ease of revision down the line. Resurfacing procedures have a lower dislocation rate than standard total hip arthroplasty. These advantages make resurfacing a nice choice in young patients with end-stage arthritis. Contraindications to resurfacing procedures include coxavera, as it may predispose to a femoral neck fracture, and limb length discrepancies, as the resurfacing procedure does not allow you to change limb length. Periprosthetic femoral neck fractures are the most common cause for revision in the acute postoperative period and occurs in up to 4% of resurfacing procedures. Risk factors for a femoral neck fracture include notching of the femoral neck on the initial implant placement, osteoporotic bone, and varus component positioning. Because this procedure requires a wider surgical exposure than the standard total hip arthroplasty, there is an increased incidence of heterotopic ossification as well. Furthermore, resurfacing bearings are typically metal-on-metal, and therefore there are elevated metal ions within the serum and urine, and the patient is at risk for pseudotumor formation. Finally, let's talk about hip arthrodesis and resection arthroplasty. Hip arthrodesis is most commonly performed as a salvage procedure for a failed total hip arthroplasty. It is also indicated in young active laborers with unilateral hip arthritis. It increases the energy expenditure during ambulation by 30% and decreases gait efficiency by 50%. The hip is fused into a position of 20-25 to degrees of flexion, neutral abduction, and neutral or 10 degrees of external rotation. Altered gait mechanics place stress on the adjacent joints, and up to 60% of patients will experience adjacent joint degeneration. This adjacent joint degeneration is the most common reason for converting the arthrodesis to a total hip arthroplasty. Symptoms typically begin within 25 years of the initial arthrodesis and present as lumbar spine, contralateral hip, or ipsilateral knee pain. Disabling back pain is the most common reason for conversion to the total hip arthroplasty. Adequate hip abductor complex function is necessary for successful conversion from an arthrodesis to a total hip arthroplasty. Preoperative EMG analysis of the abductor complex should be obtained. If the abductor complex is non-functional, then a constrained acetabular component is required during the total hip arthroplasty. Resection arthroplasty is indicated for incurable infections non-compliant patients with psychiatric or drug-seeking behavior that present with recurrent dislocations, non-ambulatory patients with decubitus ulcers, and patients with neuromuscular disorders or severe contractures of the hip. It is typically the last step prior to a hip disarticulation. Alright, so that concludes our talk on the key testable information revolving around revision total hip arthroplasty, arthrodesis, and resurfacing procedures. Question writers tend to focus on indications and complications surrounding these procedures, so take some time to really study them fully. As always, please check back frequently for updates and modifications of the lecture. Thanks for listening.